Let's pray. And Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, uh, we pray that your hand will be upon us, Lord. You know uh, every heart that's in here and the things that are going on in our lives, Lord, the things that happened this week, the things that are going to happen in the week to come, Lord. And uh, you want to speak to those ends, Lord. And so I pray that your hand uh, would lead us and guide us and open our minds to understand the things you desire for us right now. And uh, lead us, Lord. We ask you in your name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, we got some up here in the front. You can go ahead and grab one. Acts 17, if you got a white or a blue Bible that uh, you grabbed from us, it's page 540. We're going to be in the second half of Acts chapter 17 today. Um, before we get there, a couple quick announcements. Uh, the women served... Um, dinner at Hope House last night, and uh, I heard it went very well. A bunch of cool opportunities and a couple hours hanging out with some women that are struggling at this point in life and being able to minister to them in uh, a not overtly Christian context, which is pretty cool uh, to be able to reach out to people who aren't um, necessarily involved with the ministry or you know, in that realm. So that was cool. Um, the angel tree presents, we'll pray for those in a second, but we have, I think it ended up being 23 kids on the list that we bought presents for. So good job, you guys. Um, if you're questioning what we're going to do with those, we're going to uh, split those up amongst a few of the lead team and we'll deliver them this week. So if you wrapped them and they're up here, you can just leave them up here. We'll take care of them from there. So thank you for that. Um, a few of you are like, I didn't get my Amazon order in time. Um, Try to get this to us as soon as possible. If, uh, if not, you might get a call from us that says, hey, what's the deal? We might just go buy a present real quick so that none of those kids end up without one. So anyway, that's kind of the plan. Um, and then Christmas Eve service, 5 o'clock on Friday, this Friday. So it's just 5 to 5.30. All the kids are in here with us. Everybody's together. We sing some carols. Uh, do candlelight at the end. It's usually real fun, and we keep it short so you can uh, get home to Christmas Eve dinner or whatever you're planning on. So, uh, 5 o'clock this, this Friday, Christmas Eve. Uh, let's go ahead and pray for these uh, gifts. Uh, if you didn't know, just before I pray, uh, the Angel Tree uh, Ministry is a group that buys presents for kids whose parents are in prison. And so that's what the deal is. The parents couldn't buy their own kids' presents, so uh, they put a wish list out there. They write a little message to them, uh, so we buy the presents and deliver them, and add the message, and then we'll, we put a Bible in all of them. So, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Cool opportunity. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we're humbled that you would use us at all uh, to serve your kids in, in these ways, Lord. I know that uh, none of these kids in the city uh, are beyond your, your reach or your scope or your understanding, but especially these kids whose parents are uh, paying for consequences of sin that they've chosen, Lord. Uh, and so we step in uh, as ministers of the gospel and, and say, nobody's beyond reconciliation or redemption, Lord, um, and nobody is beyond your love. And, and, and so you tell us to pay special attention to the orphan and the widows and the poor, Lord, and so this is an effort to do that, and we thank you for the opportunity, and we pray your blessing on these gifts, uh, that they would uh, be multiplied fruit, Lord, that, that results would come from these gifts uh, that are just beyond our comprehension uh, in spiritual places, Lord. And so um, may your will be done 
Uh, may you bless the efforts of, of the people who bought the gifts and prayed over them. And, and maybe even remind us this week, Lord, as we go about our, our Christmas activities, Lord, maybe to pray for the presents we bought. And uh, we just ask that you'd be honored and glorified in it. And it's in your name we ask. Amen. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 17. Uh, this is part two, so we're going to start a little bit further down. Uh, verse 22, when we get there, um, I just want to start with this idea of what kind of is happening here. And it, I've told this story before, well, parts of these stories, but I lived in Australia for a little while. And one of the things, when some of you are really angry that I even brought that up. You're like, it's eight degrees outside and you're talking about Australia. But anyway, when I lived there, I learned how to surf. Well, I wanted to learn how to surf. Maybe that's a better way to say it. And um, that was like my thing. I was like, if, when I, if I'm moving there, I'm learning how to surf. And so I found some guys in the church uh, that I was involved with that surfed. And so I was like, hey, I need to learn how to surf. And they're like, all right, let's do it. So we made a plan. Uh, to go surfing. And so I showed up like 10 minutes early, and I was the first one there. I'm in the parking lot. I got my wetsuit on, right? And so I got my surfboard under my arm, and I put my little ankle leash on there. And I'm ready to go. Nobody else is there, but I'm waiting. And, uh, and they show up like right on time, and it's like one car, then two cars, then the rest of them come. And the thing that really started to annoy me is none of them seemed to be in a hurry. Like, in fact, most of them, they pull up and they're just looking at the ocean like they're sitting in their car. And I'm like sitting there like a, on, the, on the park bench there, like ready to go. And they're just like looking at the ocean. And then they start to get out of their cars and none of them even have swimsuits on or what. Like they're just like so taking their time and then they're changing and they're looking at the ocean. And I found out what I didn't know at the time, which was really annoying me, is a giant percentage of surfing is just looking at the ocean. Like that's, you, if you didn't know this, if you're not a surfer, it's not a big deal, but like they just look at the ocean for long, long periods of time, especially before they get in. And I didn't know this because I wasn't a surfer, but they're looking at it and they were seeing things that I did not see. They're looking where the brakes are going, how the wind is blowing, where the currents take and things. They're looking at all this stuff. And I got a little bit better at it by the end of my time there. I was never, never mind. But it was uh, like, I always felt like as I looked at the ocean, like real surfers saw stuff that I never saw. They're like looking at it like, oh, yeah, I see. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of see that lying because I didn't want to sound like an idiot, right? Paul is going to do the same thing today. He's going to get into this situation in Acts chapter 17. He's going to look at it, and he's going to see things that other people probably would not see. Now, some of this is excusable. Like if you're like, I never intend on surfing, so I don't really care about the ocean and how to look at it the correct way. Some of that's okay, but others of this, like, you should see if you're going to mature properly. Like normal humans, like as they grow up, they see things that younger humans don't see, which is why you, you have your kid that's like, can I swing the golf club in the house? And you're like, no, right? Because I see all the things you're going to hit, including your little sister or whatever else. Or, or, you know, the kid runs out in the street. Why? Because he doesn't see the cars that are coming. He's too small. He doesn't know where to look, hasn't thought about this. And so as you grow up, as you mature, you should see things that maybe previously you didn't see. And so this is going to happen with the Apostle Paul. He's going to get in this situation in Acts 17 in a city called Athens, and he's going to see some stuff uh, that hopefully we could see as we work through the passage. So I don't usually title my messages because um, I'm lazy. I don't know why I don't. But if I did title this one, it would be, Do You See What I See? <laughs> you like that? Christmas time? You're welcome. Verse 
16, chapter 17. Here we go. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So if you remember where we left off in the history of this, in the account, Paul is on a trip through northern Greece. Uh, he's stopped in a few different places, and every place he's preached the gospel, people have responded, but then other people have been angry about him preaching the gospel and have started riots and have been kind of following him around, rioting from place to place. He got arrested and beaten in Philippi. Then there was a riot that he had to run from in Thessalonica. Then he ended up in Berea, had to run from that one because they were trying to murder him. And finally, uh, the brothers, so the, the, uh, the other Christians, were like, hey, there's another plot to kill you in the last place he was at, Berea. So they got him on a boat by night. It says they snuck him onto this boat, and they sailed him all the way down kind of around the peninsula to Athens. And apparently, because this was like a covert operation, kind of a like, like get this guy out of here so he doesn't get murdered type thing, the other apostles who were on the trip with them, Timothy, Silas, probably Luke, uh, who wrote the book, uh, didn't actually make it onto the boat with him. So he gets to Athens, he's there by himself, and he's waiting for his buddies now to catch up with him. So that's why it says, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. And as Paul is sitting there waiting for them, it says he looks around and he saw the city was full of idols. Now, we've talked about idols before. Idols are things that we worship that are not God. Uh, they can take the form of, of things that we call gods, like little gods. Like uh, maybe you've seen little shrines and things like that, usually in like Southeast Asia or something like that, or statues of a god. You know, you've seen those uh, in certain instances. Or they could just be things that are non-physical, like money or intelligence or success. Uh, those can all be idols. But in this case, it was literal things that they claim to be gods in some sense of the word. Little statues, little shrines, uh, little pictures with candles, you know, those types of things uh, that you would kind of think of as, as paganistic gods from uh, times past. And Paul looks around and sees there are thousands of these little gods worshipped in Athens. Literally thousands. And they have little statues or shrines or, or whatever. And Paul is, is trying to figure out, like, how do I reach these people who are entrenched in this culture that is continuing to worship these idols? And so he begins sharing the gospel like was his usual pattern. He goes to the synagogue, uh, preaches the, in the synagogue, says uh, he shares in the marketplace. So as people are kind of meandering about in the marketplace, he starts to share. And in verse 18, he gets an opportunity now to share in a place he's never shared before in a way he's never shared before. So look at verse 18. It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, so Paul is, is sharing in the marketplace. He's heard, he's overheard by some of the philosophers that are there, the Greek philosophers, um, which was a really big deal in that city. Uh, highly prized, like 
philosophical thinking, like intelligence, like this kind of like, uh, you know, academia kind of has that feel in America now, but it's kind of this like intellectual, like superiority that they have uh, in Athens that they think kind of, we think about things that other people aren't thinking about. We ask deep questions. We're, we're really artsy and thoughtful in that way. And this place where they used to discuss these things, these kind of philosophical questions, is called the Areopagus. Uh, if you know anything about kind of Greek-Roman history and like the Greek mythology and then Roman mythology is Rome's, Rome kind of conquered the Greek empire and then they just basically took over their gods, right? So the Greek mythology had god names and then Rome was like, no, we're renaming that, renaming that god. So uh, Areopagus literally translated as like the rocky hill of Ares, the god of war. And when Romans conquered them, uh, their god of war or the renamed Ares was Mars. So you may have heard of this called Mars Hill. It's the same thing. You've actually probably heard of uh, ministries that have named themselves after Mars Hill. Uh, we'll get to why that is in a minute. But Paul is about to speak to the Athenians. And what I want you to pay attention to is that it's going to sound very different from anything we've heard Paul say so far. Very different from the way he's approached the message. It's going to be very different from how he uses illustrations to the authority that he references and all of these different things. And usually when Paul goes into the synagogue, he uses a lot of Bible. He usually uh, defers to the authority of the scripture. He uses a lot of these things that we're used to seeing. It's going to be very different in this speech that he gives, this sermon or, or whatever you want to call it. It's not really a sermon. It's not in a church setting. But... Um, there's a big word that people use for this idea, like smart people. It's the word contextualization. I know it has a lot of syllables. You don't really need to know what it means other than, like, it sounds like context, right? That's where it comes from. Context is all the things around a certain situation. Anytime communication takes place, it is in reference to context. Anytime we make any sort of choice in regards to our communication, we are subjecting it to context. And so, so, for example, as soon as I got up here and decided I was going to speak English in the message this morning, I was putting it into the English language context. And what we need to know about context is when we make these contextual choices, we are making the, the communication more accessible to some people and less accessible to other people at the same time. Every time we make a contextual choice, that's happening, whether you know it or not. So when I chose to speak English this morning, I was making it more accessible to those of you who speak English and less accessible to those of you who do not, which you probably didn't come to church this morning if you don't speak English, right? But that's kind of the way that it works. Every communication is subject to the context, even gospel communication. The truth does not change, but the way we communicate the truth, it makes it accessible to some people and inaccessible to other people. Now, you may be thinking, why do you uh, even care about this, Jared? Because if you don't realize that the way that you're communicating is helping some people understand it and hindering other people, that you're going to be misunderstood. We have this idea, especially people who have been in the church, I just share the gospel. I just read the Bible. If you just completely ignore the idea that contextualization is always taking place, you're setting yourself up to be misunderstood. And at best, when you are misunderstood, people just don't care. Like, I don't know. Remember earlier they called him a babbler. They're like, what the heck is he saying? At worst, and what usually happens is you end up offending somebody. And, and so we'll continue 
Uh, I wanna, we'll, we'll talk about this idea in a minute. But for us, what this means is when Christians contextualize, it means we take the truth of the scriptures and we use it to answer questions that people in our time and our place are asking. Okay? We use it. What questions do they have? What are they looking for? What are they not finding? We take the Bible and we put it into that context. What are the questions of the people that we live around? What questions are they asking? And then we do that. We answer those questions in language and forms and methods that they understand and can receive from. And then we do it through appeals and arguments that carry some weight with them, that they can feel. But maybe an easier way to kind of sum up that idea would be this frame it from a negative perspective. Nobody cares if you're answering questions they aren't asking. Like Nobody cares if you're using forms and means of communication that they don't understand. Right? Nobody cares if you're addressing topics that they don't care about. Like, I got answers to questions. I don't care because I'm, I'm not asking that question. Right? And so all of these things are happening when we contextualize. Last thing I'll say before we move on in the scriptures. When Paul sees this city, he's seeing a much different context than he's used to. He's looking around and he's going, these people are asking different questions than the people I'm used to hanging out with. These people use different methods and forms of communication than the people I'm used to interacting with. These people feel weight from arguments and methods and and truth uh, in a different way than the people I'm used to. And there's another C word that I'll use uh, that kind of encompasses all of this. It's called culture, right? And maybe that's easier for us to understand. A culture is, is kind of this thing that we make up as a group of people. It's the norms for how we operate, the things that we think are valuable, the ways that we communicate. Those are all part of our culture. Everybody lives in a culture. You cannot escape culture. It exists. Everybody comes from a culture, and what makes it really complicated is not only does everybody come from a culture, there's like millions of cultures. So when Paul looks around and sees Athens, he sees a different culture, and more specifically, he sees a culture full of idols, a way of life that is normalized worshiping many different gods as common practice. So what does Paul do? What does Paul do when he looks around and he goes, wow, this context is way different. Their culture thinks this is normal. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, took a sledgehammer to one of the idol statues and screamed out, you stupid heathens, you have angered the God of heaven. Nobody saw that in their translation. It took you a few words, right? You're like, wait, that's not in here. Like, what version is he reading from? That sounds awesome. It's the William Wallace revised version. No, it's not. It's not what it says. He doesn't just start kicking stuff down and be like, you guys are idiots. Do you not see what you're doing? Look at what he does do. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. What? We already said everybody lives in a culture. Everybody comes from a culture. And not only does everybody exist in a culture, there's all these different cultures, right? But on top of this potential confusion, every culture has elements within it that are good 
And every culture has elements within it that are very bad. Every culture has elements that are in line with what the Bible teaches, that are affirming of the gospel, and every culture has things that are opposed to what the Bible teaches, that are anti-gospel. Every culture is a literal mixed bag of both good and bad elements. There are elements of culture that must be affirmed in line with the gospel and elements of culture that must be rejected because they're anti-gospel. And if you have not taken inventory of which elements belong on which list, you might just be affirming things that are anti-gospel because they're part of a culture that you're comfortable with. That's a problem, okay? Now, when you come to a culture you're not familiar with, you should be doing the same thing. You should be making a list mentally of things that you can affirm that are affirming of the gospel and things that you must reject because they're anti-gospel. The gospel calls us to care about people and show them love. And so where there are tons of parts of this culture that Paul could reject, that's not where he starts. He could have. He could have, like I pretended that it said, smashed all their idols and been like, you guys are idiots. You think you're so smart. These gods are just demons or they don't exist at all. They probably wouldn't have listened to what he had to say, right? So where does Paul start? Paul starts by affirming the elements of their culture that are pro-gospel. Like, he looks at their culture and he says, yeah, they're way wrong. Like, they're full of idols, but there are elements within their culture that point to the thing that was built within them in the Imago Dei, the image of God that they were created with, that is not completely broken and unrecognizable. They think that it is noble to be very religious. And he points that out. I perceive that you are very religious. You believe in higher powers. You believe in living a life that pursues those higher powers. And Paul finds this element of their culture that's worth affirming. He can connect with and he can affirm that. And that's pretty good. Right? He looks around and he says, you guys care about God and supernatural things and spiritual things? That's worth celebrating and affirming. I know plenty of people in the world that don't care at all about supernatural things. All they care about is material things, right? So at least these guys acknowledge that there's something beyond physical world. Like so many people in our culture have no intention of thinking about spiritual things, especially in Christmas season. It's all about money and physical things and presents, and, right? It's all material. So this is worth affirming. Look at verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Again, he's affirming another element in their culture. He says, I was walking around and I saw this little shrine to the unknown God. It's a little bit funny, right? They have thousands and thousands of gods that they do worship. And somebody at, point, at some point in Athens was like, hey, what if we forgot one? And they're like, so they build another shrine and they're like, to the unknown God, just in case, you know, this God shows up one day and he's like, you guys forgot me. And they're like, no, 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 we have one for you. We just didn't know how to spell your name. So here it is, right? So it's kind of funny. And Paul says, hey, it's worth noting that you guys think it's of value to worship God or gods and, and live your lives in the context of spirituality. But this idea that you don't know one of the gods, it's true. And the God that you don't know is the God that I worship. And so it's a great observation of this different culture by 
Paul. Previously, he talked to the Jews, and, and there, the authority that he pointed to was all biblical, right? He quoted a bunch of verses. He said, the Bible says this, because they, in their culture, affirmed the authority of the word of God. These people, in their culture, in the Greek culture, in Athens, they don't affirm the authority of the word of God. So Paul's going to have to refer to another authority structure. Look at verse 24. He says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So this is biblical truth. Like the Bible tells us that God is the creator God, but this is something that the Athenians would accept, the idea of the creation of the world by a supernatural power. Nor, verse 25, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, he recognizes these people don't believe the Bible has any authority, so that's not where he starts. He starts with creation. But then he uses the idea of creation, which they would have accepted that we were created beings, and he makes his first challenge. Okay, so he starts with these affirming characteristics, these affirming elements of their culture. He's like, hey, you guys are spiritual? Me too. You guys believe in worshiping gods? Me too. You, you guys believe that there's more to life than what's physical? Me too. Hey, you guys think there's an unknown God? Let me tell you about him. He's the one that created all of this. And now he's going to challenge one of their beliefs based on the foundation of these things that he's affirmed. He said, there's a lot of great things about what you got going here, but one thing that you're off on is this idea, if God created everything, then he cannot live in something you made. Right? If he made you and you make something, he's not going to live in the thing you made. That's stupid. <laughs> Think about it. He created all of it, and then you built a little shrine. You're like, live here. And he's like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. If he's the creator God, he's not going to live in a little thing that you made. Not only is he not going to live in a little thing that you made, he probably doesn't need anything at all from you. Like, if we're to think about this, you want to go philosophy, Athenians? Think about the idea that there's an unknown God out there. Think about if that God were the creator God. Would he need anything from you? He created you. And take it a step further. If he did need something from you, then he probably wouldn't be worth worshiping anyway. And so see how he starts to challenge their thoughts about God? In verse 26, look what he says. He continues on. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. Here we have more affirmation that mankind should seek God. They clearly believe this. It's worth affirming. And I've met, like I said, tons of people who don't even think that we should seek God. But he challenges it because after he says that all mankind should seek God, it says, he says this, he uses this word, and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Do you see the challenge in that language? Who feels their way towards something? People who can't see, right? You ever been in a situation where you can't see what's going on? You're like, 
right? Or you're like trying to like reach behind something and like you can't see what's going on. So you're like, I'm feeling around. Like that's the picture that he challenges them on, which is interesting because he's exposing like this, this contrast within their culture. He's like, hey, you guys think it's great to seek God? You guys value wisdom? You guys value intelligence? But you're saying that there's an unknown God out there. And I'm saying if that's the creator God, then you guys are completely wasting your time worshiping these other gods. And the picture he gives is of like somebody who can't see, like feeling their way towards God. What happens when you can't see and you're feeling your way towards something? You bump into stuff. You run into stuff. And so the even funnier picture that he's painting here is of people who can't see but are pretending like they can see. Like, what if we were all in a room together and none of us could see, but we didn't want the person next to us to know we couldn't see? So we're, like, running into things. Like, you know, you're, like, walking through the... Oh, no, no, I knew that was there. Just, you know, you're hitting stuff. You're like, ah, my shin. Like, I didn't need that skin anyway. Like, you know, like all the stuff that you do when you can't see in your house in the dark and you bump into it or you step on a Lego and, like, you know, these are all the things... That's the picture. They're like feeling their way towards God. So this is the contrast, right? They think they're very smart. They think they're very intelligent. They think that they got it all figured out. And hey, we've got all our bases covered. We're worshiping all these gods. And Paul says, hey, if you were really that smart, you would realize that a creator God would not need you to worship him. A creator God would not need you to build him a shrine to the unknown God, so he would be offended. Uh, you're actually just kind of fumbling your way through the dark if you haven't actually figured out who that creator God is, that unknown God. Look at verse 28. So now Paul's going to continue on uh, challenging what they think. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So, again, he's affirming parts of this culture that are worth affirming. He quotes two of their philosophers and poets, Epimendes and Erratus, right? When he says, for we live and move and have our being, that's a quote from a poem. And then when he says, we indeed are his offspring, he even said, that's a quote from a poem. Then he's upholding values that they have, like uh, an image formed by art and imagination, right? These types of things are very highly valued in the Greek culture. They're all about statues and form and beauty. And so he's like, the imagination of humanity and the artfulness of humans and the creative capacity, these are all worth upholding, but you're doing it wrong, right? And then the challenge, again, from the foundation of things he's affirmed, Paul uses the word ignorance. Ignorance is when you don't know something. And, and he's very intentionally talking to people who think they know a lot. They highly value intelligence. They kind of think of themselves like, we're the Athenians. We have Mars Hill. Like, we talk about philosophy all day long. And Paul says, actually, you're ignorant. There's things you don't know. There's the, you celebrate your knowledge, and, and the thing that is killing you is your lack of knowledge. It's a challenge. And then he calls him to this. He says, you need to repent. 
Now, in our context, we think of repentance as doing something different, right? But Paul just referenced ignorance. So, so Paul is calling them to think something different. You see that? Re- repentance is not just a body word. It's also a mind word. Repentance is not just, hey, I stop doing a thing and start doing another thing. It's I stop thinking a thing and start thinking another thing. And he's challenging not just the things that they do, but the things that they think in this culture, which is, again, something they would have highly valued. And so he's communicating, like we said early, he's contextualizing into a culture that highly values this idea of thinking and and philosophy and processing. He's like, hey, guys, you need to think differently. You need to think differently about your God. And then he says this, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So Paul finishes with the ultimate challenge. He says, there's actually a God. He's the creator God. You don't know about him because you just call him the unknown God, but he made all of you. You're fumbling your way towards him because you can't see, even though you think you see. You're ignorant. You need to change the way you think and repent because he's going to judge the entire world. And the proof that this is happening is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Again, he didn't point to the authority of the scripture. He pointed to a historically verifiable fact. Remember, we're only maybe 40, at most 50 years, right, from when Jesus was born, lived his life, died on the cross, resurrected. So they could, if they wanted to, from Athens, they could get on a boat and go over to Jerusalem and start asking people, hey, you know that Jesus guy? Where's his tomb? Is it empty? Is he still there? Is there a body in there? Anybody see him? Anybody see him rose from the dead? And there would be people around who would still testify of this fact. So he's pointing out, he's, um, he's subjecting himself to an authority of a historically verifiable fact, not pointing back to the scriptures like he was doing over and over in the synagogues. Again, the cultural objections are different. Right? As Paul points to this resurrection, they start to mock. Ah, people don't raise from the dead, man. Everybody dies. It's part of life. Right? They start mocking him, and they kind of boo him off stage is what I have the picture in my mind. We don't know how much longer this speech would have gone or where Paul would have gone. Uh, but they say, oh, we'll hear you later, some boo. It's interesting, the cultural differences, because when Paul shares the gospel with the Jews, was their problem that Jesus rose from the dead? No. They believe in the God of the scriptures. He can raise people from the dead. No big deal. Their problem was that God loved Gentiles. Remember? When Paul was sharing the gospel with them, they're like, Jesus rose from the dead. Interesting. And he loves Gentiles. Boo! Like, no, he doesn't love Gentiles. These guys, when he shares the gospel, they're like, he doesn't raise him from the dead. Like, that's scientifically impossible. Right? And so the objections are different because the culture is different. The context is different. Paul seemingly gets interrupted here. Like I said, we don't know 
where the end of his message would have been. But we see enough to see very clearly this pattern. That he looks at a culture, he finds things within that culture that are worth affirming, that are pro-gospel, affirms them, and then from that foundation, he challenges things that are anti-gospel. It's, it's, it's worth noting because we live in a culture that doesn't always subject themselves to the authority of the Word of God. That, that isn't always interested in actually seeking God or doing spiritual things. Right? We need to pay attention to the culture we're in and communicating to because I think there's a huge, there's the potential for huge errors if we haven't thought about it at all. You might not be aware of this. Maybe you are. Some, there's a lot of Christians uh, and it's not so much today as it was maybe 20 years ago, but they've used this passage, this half of a chapter, as the foundation for their entire church like ministry. Like, this is how we're doing it at Mars Hill, right? There's churches named Mars Hill. There's a big one in Seattle. There was another one in, in the Midwest. Anyway, people have looked at this and been like, this is how we need to do ministry in 20-whatever, you know, 2000. They're like, Mars Hill is the, found, is the, the pattern. There's some dangers in that, okay? I'm not saying that they're completely wrong, but there's some dangers when you don't think about contextualization or think about the way you're doing contextualization. Uh, here's a couple common errors I'm going to point out just as we close. First, acknowledging and understanding context help us avoid making the gospel unnecessarily alien to culture. The gospel's offensive on its own. You don't need to be making it more offensive because you're not paying attention. Right? The idea that a holy God created you, has authority over you, is offensive to some people. Right? So me just saying that, so you're like, nobody has authority over me. You didn't create yourself. right? And then the holy God looked on your life and thought that it was so unacceptable, so full of consequence, that he had to send his one and only son to die on the cross in your place to pay the penalty that you could not pay. That's offensive to people. Not only do you not have authority over your own life, can you, you're not self-created, but you're doing a terrible job at living it. Like, your life is not your own, and you're awful at it. Like, you deserve to go to hell for all eternity. That's offensive to people. There is good news in the gospel that God gave the grace that, that, that Jesus rose from the dead and gave us the assurance and the hope of heaven, but it's offensive on its own. It's offensive to our pride. It's offensive to who we are. Right? We don't need to add our own extra nonsense on top of it to make it more offensive. Right? Like it's offensive enough as it is. Right? It's powerful as it is. And so if we think of contextualization, it helps us avoid the failure of not adapting to culture, right? Sometimes we, we build these things up, and you have to do this, and it's more offensive to the people than the actual gospel message. It, it, like, if you're answering questions they aren't asking, like, you need to believe in, fill in the blank. Like, for example, I went to Bible college, and God bless these guys because they probably meant well. Uh, but I showed up at Bible college, uh, fresh out of moving out of fraternity, obviously not living the super God-honoring lifestyle in a fraternity that you can imagine. Uh, and I had gone to a church that used the NIV version, right? 
I'm not a big argue over version guy, but I showed up at Bible college with an NIV version. Oh my gosh, my Bible college student roommates were freaking out. NIV, that's the nearly inspired version, you know, and all the like, it was a classic example of making the gospel more offensive than it needed to be. Like, it couldn't just be enough that I decided I was a sinner in need of grace and wanted to honor God with my life. I also had to read the correct version, right? And some of you are, you know, I get it. Like, there's reasons to think about the version you read and all that stuff. Like, I'm not downplaying that. But if that's your lead, like, if you're just, like, taking the sledgehammer to the idols, right? And, like, be like, don't even talk to me until you get a new version. Like, yeah, you're making it more offensive than it needs to be. Like, you're making it harder, less accessible to the people who God wants to read. And, and like I said, the best you can hope for when you fail to adapt to a certain context is they won't care. The, the more likely thing is you're going to offend people. You're going to push them away. You're going to put a barrier between God and the people he loves, which is never where we want to be. And that actually brings us to the second very common error. Don't forget that the gospel challenges all culture. The gospel challenges all culture. The gospel challenges all culture. You know what I mean by that? The gospel challenges your culture just as much as it challenges every other culture. I think sometimes we act as if Jesus, if he lived on earth, would exist in our culture. <laughs> He'd look like us. He'd do the things we do. He'd say the things we say. And that's just not true. That's just not true. The gospel challenges elements within every single culture. Right? There are elements of the Republican culture that are anti-gospel. <gasps> there are elements of the Democratic culture that are anti-gospel. <gasps> there are elements of the church culture that are anti-gospel. Somebody say amen. amen. Right? There are elements of the culture that you live and swim in that if you don't take time to identify this is pro-gospel, this is anti-gospel, you'll make huge errors. And this happens all the time with kids. Right? We just tell our kids, like, yeah, church, you got to go to church. Right? And then your kids grow up, and because you haven't said, hey, there are things within the church culture that are very pro-gospel and are very great, and we need to hold tight to and affirm those things, and there are things within church culture that really kind of suck, and we get it wrong, and we're trying to fix them, but you're going to run into those. If we don't have that conversation, your kids are going to grow up. I'm going to say something that makes them mad. They're going to leave church forever because they're like, Jared, so blah, 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 and he did this anti-gospel thing. I do anti-gospel things. We all do anti-gospel things. That doesn't mean we throw the church out. The flip side of that is we just say like, oh, this culture, everything about that culture is terrible. And then your kids grow up and they have interactions with that culture and they go, hey, there's elements of that culture that are gospel affirming. Mom and dad must have been wrong. Homosexuality is okay. Because they told me it was all wrong. I knew some homosexuals. There's some things in their life, in their culture, that's actually gospel affirming. And so mom and dad were wrong, and I think it's okay now. 
because you never had that conversation. You never, you never thought through the idea that like there are elements of every single culture that are affirming, worth affirming, and elements of every single culture that they get completely wrong, that are anti-gospel. Every culture is profoundly inconsistent in confirming some biblical truths, but not others. There's a few things we get right and a whole lot of things we get wrong. Are you humble enough to see that? Are, are you humble enough to see that? What if, let's, let's like play a little game. What if you live next door to Athens? What if you're like the, the most conservative American type of Christian, right? You homeschool your kids, your Bible reading, authority, word of scripture, church going. What would you have told your kids about the Athenian culture? It's so bad. They worship all sorts of gods. They are the most terrible. Every, like, all bad things. Don't go to Athens. They're the worst. You just, right? If you had that kind of message to your kids about the Athenian culture, and then Paul stands up and he says, I hear that you're very religious in every single way. What are you going to kids going to say? I went to Athens today and I heard this Paul guy and I think he's a heretic because he was affirming parts of their culture. Because he loved them. Because he was going to later challenge their culture on gospel issues. Because he looked at them and said, hey, you know what? There's things here, because you were created in the image of God, that God is very in line with and okay with. There are other things you got way wrong. And I think we don't take the time to contextualize or think about the culture enough to prepare our own hearts or our kids' hearts for what they're going to encounter in the world. And if you're just saying like, oh yeah, this culture's always right, that's baloney. That's baloney, right? Your kids are smart. You guys are smart, right? If you haven't heard that today, you're welcome, right? They're smart enough. When they grow up, they're going to be like, wait, they said we should just take this whole culture, and I look at it, and there's some anti-gospel stuff in there. Yeah, all the cultures are like that. So what do we do? There's a truth about God and a truth about your condition and a truth about Jesus and a call to respond to these truths from the word of God. And it's going to hit each of us a little different based on our cultural backgrounds because of the context we live in. It doesn't mean one culture is better than another culture. It just means the gospel is a little different in the way that it hits each one of us because the, the gospel hits our brokenness in different ways, right? Our cultural differences just make people broken in different ways. That's what that means, right? These people over here are broken in this sort of way, and the gospel is going to hit them in a little bit different way than people who are in this culture and broken in this sort of way. But no culture is above another. Here's where I want to finish. The easiest thing for us to do is to evaluate the cultures that we are aware of and pick out the ways they are anti-gospel, right? Oh, cancel culture. So we're like, oh, that culture over there, they're anti-gospel about this. They're all wrong. Oh, that culture over there, they got this screwed up. They're all wrong. We don't evaluate ourselves. We point the finger at everybody else. You're wrong, you're wrong, they're wrong, he's wrong, this is why, on and on it goes, and we very arrogantly are blind to the ways our culture is anti-gospel. We miss the most important piece of this entire conversation. Look back at verse 16. Paul looks around and it says, as he sees the idol, 
his spirit is provoked. You see that? His spirit is provoked. This is not anger. This is not judgment. This is not disgust. He doesn't look around there like, when I was a kid, bread was 10 cents. You like, he's, he's not mad. He's compassionate and loving. It starts with a heart that is for the people, a heart that is for the culture he is engaging. That's completely different than the mo- way most of us approach people who are different than us. He confronts the anti-gospel elements. He challenges them, not because he's mad, not because he's upset or irritated or inconvenienced or insecure or scared, but because he cares for the people within that culture. That's, that's the piece you need to get before you move on from today. Love the people in that culture. Take the time to think about how you are contextualizing the gospel message so you're not making it unnecessarily offensive to them or you're not presenting yourself as unnecessarily arrogant from your culture. It's a time of year where things get shaken up, right? I realize I'm six minutes over, but we're almost done. It's the time of year where everything's all different, right? You're, you're probably going to spend time at dinner or whatever with people you don't usually hang out with a lot. You're going to be serving in some different kind of ways. You're going you're to be engaging people in different kind of ways, maybe longer periods of time with family or, or friends of family or your aunt's new boyfriend or whatever it is. There are going to be opportunities in this next week and beyond to contextualize and affirm the gospel in a lot of different areas in your life. I promise you. This time of year just does that in people. Maybe, maybe you have a conversation with your kids about looking for elements of culture to affirm within people who don't believe the exact same way you do that you're going to run into during the Christmas season. Maybe you look at the cultures you're in and be like, hey, I, I know we've been doing this, but there's some things about like, this culture we've been a part of that, like, that's not okay. Maybe we humble ourselves a little bit. And maybe God will allow you to love someone enough to make connections and challenge them because of your broken heart for them. Not because you're angry at them, not because you're insecure about what's going on, not because you're scared of what they might do to you or your kids or whatever, but because you actually have a provoked spirit for them. And you can tell them this. In a, in, in, Jesus is the reason for the season. Right? That's what we say all the time. But we just say that without actually having a heart and love for people. I pray that doesn't happen. I pray like Paul in Acts 17, his heart is stirred. You affirm the things you can affirm. You challenge the things that need to be a challenge because God has called you to love people, not just to hate them because they're from a different culture. Amen? Let's pray. Worship, you can come on up. Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity to study your word and just uh, see how you led Paul in uh, preaching your gospel to people who are in a different context than what he had been used to. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and eyes to see how we can uh, preach your gospel to the the cultures and contexts around us, Lord. Uh, People that we're going to be confronted with this holiday season that um, don't believe like we believe or live the lives we live or or go about things the same way we do or communicate the same way, Lord. May we not judge them. May we not make the gospel unnecessarily offensive to them. May we start with hearts that are provoked because we have compassion for them. We love them. We desire them to come to knowledge of the truth, Lord. May you use this Christmas season not only to remind us of your goodness, but maybe spread your goodness 
through the way we represent the gospel. And we ask you in your name. Amen.